And good evening. Today is Wednesday, June 23rd, 2021. I'm your host, Evan George, and welcome to Bostopia Nightly News. Now, this is a special edition episode for two reasons. One, I'm starting 30 minutes early, having fun playing with the start time. But the second is because of a big, or could be seen as small, procedural move that occurred during today's Boston City Council hearing. And this is all teeing up to what will be the big Boston City Council vote next week on the budget. Now, for people who weren't here, just getting introduced to me, last year, in the midst of the George Floyd protest movement in Boston, the city had to pass their annual fiscal budget. It occurs every year at the end of June. And there were massive calls from activists, from protesters, hundreds, thousands of people calling their state, I'm sorry, their city council members, telling them to reject the budget. Because as things are now, the Boston City Council does not have the power to tweak the budget really in any way. That's public. <clears throat> what happens every year is the mayor submits them a budget. They then symbolically all vote no. And then there's backroom deals of city council is saying, all right, I want to see this in the budget and this. Then I'll get yes. Can you throw my district some money over here? Okay. All of this is opaque. All that happens behind closed doors. Governor resubmits the budget, it passes unanimously. That is the normal status quo, all until last year. When again, in the midst of the George Floyd protest movement, there were massive thousands, tens of thousands of people marching in the street almost every day here in Boston, demanding defunding the police. The national concept of taking funds from police departments and then reinvesting that money into the community. It is the number one way to reduce crime is through any sort of po uh, poverty fighting measure. Because the source of crime is not some innate evilness that some people are born into. If that was the case, absolutely. Surveil, brutalize, and cage. But as everyone who has ever studied this knows, the number one source of poverty, I'm sorry, the number one source of crime is when you have a high concentration on unemployed poor men taking money from the police budgets direct them towards that those issues and the conservative members of the boston city council michael flaherty frank baker continuing with the white men ed flynn matt o'malley going back to the conservative wing and isa sabi george those five were very solid confirm no, we are going to pass this budget. We're not doing any of that defunding nonsense. On the left side of the aisle, Kim Janey, now acting mayor, Michelle Wu, Andrea Campbell, Julia Mahir, Ricardo Arroyo, all voted no on the budget, wanting to reject it. It would enter us into what's called a 112th budget, which sounds scarier than it is. All it means is that payments maintain flat while they negotiate a new budget. So basically there's no raises, there's no changes, things stay the same. So in the middle, between that five and that five, were three city councilors, Kenzie Bach, Lydia Edwards, and Liz Brearden. Three people that most progressive organizations endorsed and supported. 
and those three counselors decided to vote with the conservatives under the guise that, one, a year-long process will actually get you better results than any quick, people-driven, community-driven effort that they're now seeing, and two, that Marty Walsh's budget did attempt, in their eyes, to reduce police spending by cutting $14 million of police overtime. However, as I have said ad nauseum, that number is always a goal. That is not an actual concrete budget, meaning the police can go over their overtime allotted money every year, and guess what happened? They did. At the end of all of that, at the end of thousands of people marching in the streets, the brutalization, the violence done by police on protests here in Boston, the police ended up with more money. So now here we are again, back at the budget. And what was supposed to happen is next week, I believe, was on their docket to do the big vote. However, today, and it seems everyone had advance notice of this, Kenzie Bach did a motion that we're going to explore now that basically had everyone publicly communicate where they stand. And before we go into the video right now, the biggest thing that everyone has to keep in mind is one, everyone here somewhat has their own agenda because a lot of people are running for mayor, including the person who is now our acting mayor. But the second is that nothing materially happened today. All of the grandstanding, all of the speeches, everything we're about to hear does not indicate anything. And can be only could be seen as cover, could be seen as putting up a fight, could be seen as trying to damage a political opponent, but nothing material happened today. And so I am going to go into the individual motivations, in my view, of each of the counselors who are about to speak. Maybe we're going to get to this whole video today, maybe this is just a part one. But let's kick it off with Kenzie Bach, who introduces this motion. And if, as always, thank you all so much for supporting the show. If you haven't already, like and subscribe. If you're my great TikTok audience, I recommend watching this on Twitch. So that way you can see the video, you can see the people I'm talking about. But follow your, your bliss. And, you know, I think there are a lot of good things that came out of the hearings that we've held over the last three months that are reflected in this resubmission. Um, you know, everything from more fire coverage for West Roxbury to a doubling of the neighborhood slow streets team so that we can really process the need for safer slower streets in our um, districts uh, to, you know, a study for municipal broadband. Um, I should have brought all my notes, but there's, there's quite a lot of things that, frankly, wouldn't be in the docket that's coming into the um, council today if it weren't for all the council's questions and advocacy um, over the last uh, three months. And I've been, I've been proud to run that process. Um, and I think I've been very clear with folks that I think it's really important um, for the council and the acting mayor and all of us to come together and get a budget for the people of Boston for FY22. Um, I think that that's something that um, our residents expect. I think it's something that um, rating agencies and others looking at Boston expect. Um, and I do see that in my role as being um, the job uh, that's before us. Um, but, and, and I, you know, am a yes on this resubmitted budget in all of its parts. That said, um, I have been hearing a lot of concern from counselors. Obviously, some of it was reflected in the press this morning, um, but over the last few weeks, about a sense that this budget may not yet be meeting the moment in terms of the urgent crises of the city. Um, and I'm very mindful of the uniqueness of this moment, bracketing the entire political situation, the uniqueness of the moment in which we are coming back from COVID recovery. We have federal dollars that people will ask us for decades how we spend, um, and we have crises, whether you're talking about housing, the climate crisis, mass and gas, um, you know, 
digital equity, our worries about summer violence, how we get our youth jobs, I mean, um, our main streets, vacancies, how we get local businesses in their zones. I mean, these are the things that are coming up. And, and it is clear that not all of those things can wait um, for five months and for political campaign. And it, it is important to me um, that we figure out how to make sure that this budget is a piece of a solution is, you know, to these critical issues. Um, and so the way that I feel is your ways and means share is that if the acting mayor isn't getting us there, that it may be that this council needs to take it into our own hands and think about what is it, what are the supplemental appropriations, what are the things that get this council to an ability to provide the city with an operating budget before the beginning of the fiscal year on first July. Um, and I, you know, the whole the whole way that our charter works is that the reason that the council president becomes the acting mayor is because the charter, look, the, the framers of our charter, we have a number of issues with them, but I think one thing that, um, that I do understand about it is they looked at the situation in which your elected mayor uh, is um, is gone, and they say, well, if the elected mayor is gone, where is the democratic authorization of the people of Boston? Where is that lodged? Where can we find that? And it finds it in this room, right? The, like this room, the 13 councilors, including the acting mayor, right, we are the folks who have been elected by the people of Boston to represent them and to fund a budget that serves their interests and meets their urgent needs. Um, and so uh, I really, um, I want to suggest that this council really engage today and over the week ahead with the question of what gets us there, what gets us to a budget that um, that we can all feel like is meeting that that moment and is and is living up to what we've what we've been elected to do. And personally, I have a lot of um, I have a lot of faith in this body, and I'm proud to represent it in this ways and means capacity. Um, and so, I want us to talk today about like what are those things that feel like we don't have them yet in the budget. And I I am Mr. P Madam Chair going to. Um, uh, all of this is a preamble to, I would like to make a motion today to suspend and pass the operating budget. Um, I'm aware that that may not have unanimous consent, that's the, I, as my remarks have noted, um, in, in which case it'll continue in committee, but I want us to figure out where we are today and start to lay out a roadmap for where we can get over the coming days. And I want to stress that as your ways and means chair, like I will I will call uh, working sessions and hearings for Friday, for Monday, for Tuesday. Um, I think that there is an opportunity uh, to think about as like a supplemental appropriation that might meet some of the concerns of the council. Um, but you know, the way that we deliberate together is in public. Um, and I don't think we should let this moment pass um, without without kind of the council taking it into our hands and saying, how are we how are we getting there on behalf of the people of Boston? Um, so that is my uh, that is my request to my colleagues today um, is to is to make some remarks now so that we can begin to pull something together. Um, and also Madam Chair, when people have had a chance to make remarks, I, I would like to move to suspend and pass on docket 0801 and just so folks know I will also be moving for suspension and passage of Docket 0802, um, the BPS budget. So if folks had comments on that, it could be in the it could be in a second wave. So thank you, Manager. Okay, trying to now break down what Kendra just said. So she mentioned so the motion she is doing, as I understand it, is would technically require everyone in the body to unanimously approve the maneuver, and then vote for the budget now. And as she expresses, she knows that that is not going to happen. So she is using that parliamentary procedure, basically, to create an avenue where people can publicly express whether they are or are not for the current budget that's under the, uh, being proposed, what would they like to say, all that good stuff. And she began her statement by saying, I am a yes on this budget. And now is a good time to go into what I think is some of Kenzie Bach's motivation for this. Because as I mentioned before in the beginning, she was one of those three counselors that decided to join the conservatives and squash what was the building momentum to actually have a people's budget here in Boston. She's a first-time city councilor, the chair of the 
House Ways and Means was an incredibly powerful position. And she spoke first during that whole budget debate and basically gave cover to Lydia Edwards, to Liz Brayden, who both cited her in their own statement, saying that Kenzie's plan would get us to a, a better place, that Kenzie's plan was better than the demands of the activists and the organizers and the left wing of the Boston City Council. And the ending result of that is, as I said before, the Boston police got more money. The whole last year, they can have all the hearings they wanted. They brought in the police. Sometimes the police would wave them off saying, we're not even showing up. Most recently they did, and the cops said, hey, nothing we can do. Yep, COVID, don't look at the fact that we have three to four times as many officers out than any comparable municipal police department. Don't look at any of that fraud stuff. Uh, nothing we can do. And so for me, Kenzie is recognizing how bad it looked, not just her statements a year ago, but everything that has happened since then is still unwilling to use the power of the office that she has, which would be to vote no and to force a 112th budget and then to go into concrete political battle over who wins the narrative, acting Mayor Kim Janey versus the city council and what the city council wants. I think she wants to avoid all that and is basically using this move today to give cover to demonstrate that this time she at least tried to fight for something. So she began her statements already revealing her card, saying that she supports the budget and basically already expressing that this is mostly symbolic, that people get to voice publicly, because for some people, they think that's democracy. They think that if they just let us be heard and then they go make the decision that that is somehow democracy. So Kenzie is giving the other counselors cover to right now make their statements. Let's see who's next. Thank you. Um, Council Campbell informed me all I have to do is push the button, right? <laughs> so this is my first time uh, taking the DSO. First of all, thank you, uh, Council O'Malley, for this opportunity. And I am going to now call on Council O'Malley, uh, so you can speak. Thank you very much, Madam Chair. You are natural. This is like Jeopardy. We're trying out uh, the next uh, the next host. Um, well done. Thank you to the Chair of the Committee on Ways and Means for her uh, tenacious approach to this work. Um, while I've been here 11 years, sat through and voted on 11 budgets, you are only my second Ways and Means Chair. Um, and while I have great regard for your predecessor in that spot, uh, former Councilor Mark Siomo, I think he would agree uh, that you've really taken it to a new level in terms of um, not only oversight, but also hearing from one another and really building a communal approach. And that's the most important thing of this budget. Coming together, finding common ground. We're not going to agree on everything. Lord knows we don't. And we're certainly not going to agree with the acting mayor on everything. But to have an opportunity to come together, put out our ideas, listen to one another, engage with the community is so crucial to what a budget ought to be. As I said, this is my 11th and final budget. I voted yes on budgets in the past. I voted no on budget in the past. Um, this is a, there are some good. And as a quick refresher, Matt O'Malley choosing not to run for re-election. I'm very curious what his next moves will be. Also, I'm also. I think Kendra Hicks scared him a little bit. He didn't want to actually have to run a tough campaign. Sometimes it's easy to cash out from your seat in office. ...in this budget, but there can be more. And we're up against a fiscal deadline, the new fiscal year, which begins on July 1st. So it's important that we use this time to try to find ways we can make this better going forward. I anticipate many of you will have issues to say and look forward to hearing it, and I want to keep my comments relatively brief because, as the chair said, we will have an opportunity for hearing and for working sessions. But suffice it to say, as we talk about 
what this budget should look like. And there are three parts for those who are watching and those observing. There's, of course, the capital budget, which funds many of our wonderful parks and playgrounds and open space and libraries and, and housing and police and fire stations. Um, then there's the education budget, which we will get to next, although I will say, um, you know, I once again want to underscore that I refuse to abide by this notion that we should be talking about excellence in all Boston public schools or access to all public schools, Boston public schools. Those two notions are not in conflict with one another. And we need to have a budget that reflects and respects both, and I believe we can get there. And then the third part of the budget... That's political nonsense, what he was just discussing. Um, this is literally the allocation of resources, and you literally cannot allocate all resources to all areas. The budget before us right now is the operating budget, so this pays for how the city runs. And it began under former mayor, Marty Walsh, he and his team sort of began assembling it, and then when he left, the acting mayor um, has put her, um, her, her mark on it as well. And again, there are some good things that I see, but we haven't gone far enough, and we'll get some more specifics on housing, on public safety, on education, certainly on small business development, on how we look to come out of this pandemic. And surprisingly, I think when many of us went through last year's budget, there was a real concern that this year's budget would be dire. Um, we've actually seen the economy in Boston be pretty resilient. Well, that's not to suggest that we don't have deep poverty and a deep income inequality, and we do. We've also seen, thankfully, with a Democratic president um, and democratically controlled Congress, we've seen some good federal funds as well. So that's part of what we're discussing, and that's one of the reasons why I set up the Nicola Committee with Council Friday this year, so we could include that oversight. But at the end of the day, as we talk about these issues, I want to keep my remarks focused on the environment. No surprise to many of you and what we ought to be doing as a coastal city. There's some good things that we talk about, sort of broad-based themes in this resubmitted budget, but it doesn't get to the crux of what we need to be focusing on. Key islands. There was a wonderful article yesterday in the Boston Globe that, that talked about a place in my district, which talked about all of our districts, where we can see, we talk about the tree canopy, it's just not because we all love trees and they look good, but they actually serve a real purpose. As it talks about how we pick up trash and collect trash and dispose of trash, that's something that, again, we, we tangentially talk about in this budget, but we need more specifics, we need more plans, we need, need a better course of action to go. The resiliency of a city, a coastal city that has seen enormous floods in the Chairs District and in District 2 as well, other waterfront districts, we need to be doing more to make sure that we are a resilient city as we combat climate change. So I am hopeful that in the days and week ahead, we'll be able to have some more serious conversation, put forth some other ideas. You know, we are working very uh, strongly on building standards, and that's something that I know the acting mayor is passionate about as well, and for the partnership there. But there's other things that we can do as an operating mechanism to make sure that we meet this moment on so many issues, but certainly not the least of which on climate change. So I look forward to hearing from my colleagues. I look forward to working together. And again, it's absolutely crucial. I, you know, we've often talked about that um, this, among the most important roles we have our, as members of this body is to be financial stewards of the city of Boston. That is absolutely true. And because of the leadership of the chair and others, we've been able to put forth a referendum in this year's budget, which I hope passes, which will even further that uh, oversight and control and collaborative approach as it comes to how we write our budgets, how we run our budgets, and how we vote on our budgets. But at the end of the day, this is our, our moment to really make sure that we can work together. And that's another thing. There's always inherently tension between the executive and the legislative branch of any government. Certainly, right, come on, Matt. Wrap it, wrap it up. The matter is, is I'm the biggest optimist in Boston, and I am very confident that we can work together and work well with the administration. And I'm going to make sure that this body is able to have a seat at that table as well, because we need to work collaboratively. We need to find a common ground. We're not going to agree on everything. We can certainly make things better. And that's what I'm prepared to work uh, every, every minute of the next week to get there and beyond if necessary. So thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank forward you. to hearing from my colleagues. Okay. So much like the the movie or the show Clue, whatever. Everyone here has their own motivations. As I expressed, Matt O'Malley is leaving. And there's a lot of speculation about what he's going to do next. I had to guess, you kind of heard it during that little speech, I think Matt O'Malley is looking for an avenue to make a lot of money off of the transition to renewable energy. I think he has, I don't know, six, eight, ten years in the city council. He has a lot of connections in the city. Everyone knows the direction things are going in. It is going to be about building standards. It is going to be about solar panels. It's going to be about alternative energy sources. He has done some things in those regards, none of which I think is that monumental. 
for me, the most impressive thing he did is he added sunscreen to the parks, which I appreciate. I think that's kind of cool. But ultimately, not doing nearly anything with development. You just spoke about uh, heat islands. Basically, the concept of there's too much concrete and pavement in areas where there should be trees and parks. Literally raising the temperature of those areas, leading to health risks. But that's my guess, is that he's cashing out for some of that green money. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Madam Chair. We often say when we talk about our budget process, we often say that that budget is a value statement. And for it to truly be a value statement of what we hold dear, we need to make sure that we have the opportunity to work on this a budget that's before us, and certainly this resubmitted budget, we need to be able to work on it together. And when I look at the resubmitted budget, there are certainly some critical elements that are missing added investment. And as Council President O'Malley mentioned, there are some really great things in, in this budget that is before us, but still a few that I think are critical. Um, are missing. When we think about the added need around housing supports, when we think about the work that is left undone to support our small businesses who are uh, struggling every single day, and when we think about the needs around public health and public safety, for sure, and then the urgent work that is not done yet around the opioid crisis and the opportunity that is before us. And then we think about our schools. I'm not going to uh, speak again to this uh, as we look at the schools budget, but as our kids return to the classroom full-time in September, we know the next crisis before us is a mental health crisis. And we know that 26 of our Boston Public Schools do not have the full-time supports that they need in place to make sure that that adjustment to the classroom is one that is done not just so the child can succeed academically, but that that child has the social and emotional supports in place as they readjust and deal with loss and deal with trauma and deal with the impacts of not just what's happened over this last year and a half, but the uh, impacts of what continues to happen in community and in home. And that we are working towards making sure that we have a library and a librarian in our schools. And that we are working towards making sure that Madison Park Vocational Technical High School has the things in place to make sure that the workforce of tomorrow is prepared and has access to those opportunities. And that we are doing inclusion right in all of our schools. So uh, I'm just going to interrupt Anissa briefly. So everyone has their own motivation. Anissa's is obviously 100% that she is running against Kim Janey. She is one of the most conservative members of the Boston City Council. She had no problem last year passing a budget that was woefully inadequate to meet the needs of education, of housing, of infrastructure, of all the things she's talking about now. But now that she's running, she can, one, use this as a stump speech. This is just literally notes taken from speeches she gives on the campaign trail. And also, maybe um, putting some shine off of Kim Janey. Because right now, Anissa has danced between first in the polls to third in the polls and has only candidate to appear in both tiers. Kim Janey and Michelle Wu seem to have broken apart. Their poll numbers have been consistent, consistently polling in the top one, two, or three. Andrea and the two Johns are consistently in that second tier, never breaking to that top measure. Anissa is the only candidate that has danced and bounced. So while again, she has no problem diverting hundreds of millions of dollars to our police and barely a fraction of that into affordable housing. She'll use this opportunity as a mayoral stump speech. So as we go through this process over the next couple of days and weeks, uh, or week, um, hopefully not weeks, that we are meeting those most urgent needs and that this budget that is before us is truly a statement of what we value as a body and as a city. So I thank you, Madam Chair, um, for uh, your work to date and look forward to um, the urgent work that is before us in these next couple of days. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you very much, Councilor Sidey George. The Chair recognizes the other at-large Councilor from Dorchester, Councilor Julie Mejia. The floor is yours. Thank you. Um, 
Mr. President, so I do have a question through you to the, the chair. Um, this is the second time in the last few weeks that we've had motions put on here. You know, usually it's just by surprise, and so we haven't had a chance to kind of like unpack what this means. I came here ready to understand that we were voting on this on the 30th, so now we're voting on it today just to reject it, I'm going to assume. But I just think for those who are following us along, it's really important to note that last year when we had a point of contention between this budget, I'm just curious why as a body we did not exercise this right for democracy. And I'm just curious about what changed between then and now as to why we're able to push for, for this vote here today and why we didn't do it last year. And then I do have some things, some other things that I'd like to present. But I'm just curious about this process because there are a lot of people who are watching us and trying to figure out what is at play here and how we're able to make decisions the way we're making them and we're missing out on opportunities. Because last year, if I remember, there was a lot of energy around pushing um, the mayor to some vital police reform issues but I didn't see that energy from the body to listen to the voices of the people. So I'm just curious in terms of process, if you can help explain to me how in this moment in time is different than last year. And then I have some recommendations. Let, let me, let me uh, answer. Oh, all right. Um, that was great. So what, of course, Julia is referring to is basically that big vote where they could have done the same move. They could have the week before the budget vote did this symbolic no again, because they, again, they do it like a month earlier, which it, it goes unnoticed because it happens every year. They could have used this forum the same way to voice their concerns. They could have sent it back to Marty Walsh to put pressure on him on that one week to make some changes. And they chose not to do that. And so what Julia is rightfully pointing out is why are we doing this move now when all of the energy was last year? People marching was last year. People in the streets was last year. Thousands of people calling our office was last year. So why are we doing it now towards Kim Janey? And we did not use it with all that energy towards Marty Walsh. I'll say my theories is one, because now is a competitive election for mayor. And this is much more about politics, about people gaming for position in that race than it is anything else. We're going to go bounce back and forth, and I'll tell you uh, what I think Julia's motivation is. So that through the chair of the Committee on Ways and Means, uh, Councilor Bach, you have the floor to respond to Councilor Mejia's uh, query. Thank you, uh, Mr. President and Councilor Mejia. Um, so I think a couple of things to say here. Uh, so there was obviously, there's been considerable reports in the press last night this morning about people's uh, reluctance about this budget. Um, as everyone knows, I was uh, Ways and Means chair for the first time this year. I am the Ways and Means chair for a second time this year. And, uh, and you know, we all hope that we've learned along the way in these roles. Um, and a huge frustration of mine last year was that, as you say, there was considerable public pressure, but the public pressure was mainly focused on a no vote because the budget was not adequate, right? And then it was like, okay, and then we got down to the wire, and it's like, well, but the problem with a no vote is that you send us to a 112, we lose a lot of things that we care about. Like I said, as a ways and means chair, I have real concerns about losing the AAA rating, about sort of the sense of financial stability of the city. So that. All right, so just one to point out the inaccuracies in that we lose a lot of things we care about because what Kenzie is referring to is that. The 112 budget just reverts everything back to the consistent pay for like all the base salaries, that there are no new programs being added. And so what Kenzie is saying is that, well, if we didn't pass that budget, all those nice little sweeteners that Marty Walsh let us have, those crumbs, those are gone. Well, that is true. However, how politics works is that if you dismiss the budget, the pressure is now on Marty Walsh to submit a new one, and you could actually get even more than you got before. And so in that temporary gap between 
maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, you are correct that there was not a new thing with the additional carrots that people got. But how pressure works is you actually end up getting more when you put pressure, not less. And the second, the AAA bond rating. The idea that people still fall for this, I mean, I, it has to be a willful ignorance, if not lying, that because of the financial capitals that give a A-plus to the good students as a way to threaten city councilors from passing one thing or the other is just ludicrous. And that we would let that, this scary rating from this body that no one elected, dictate how we should spend our resources. It's not just insulting, but it is just a complete, almost demonstration that the people in this room aren't the ones in power, that there was another force. That to me is an unacceptable cost. But one of the things that we heard from, um, from advocates and residents was we don't like that kind of false choice. Um, and I, you know, I voted yes on last year's budget. I intend to vote yes on this year's budget. Um, I didn't love the dynamic last year. See, and again, as someone who just clearly does not understand how negotiations work, what leverage are you putting on, what leverage are you using, what pressure are you putting on Kim Janey if you're already telling her, well, I'm going to vote yes, regardless? That's just not how negotiation works, it's not how power works. It's mind-boggling. So to me, reading the papers and where people are and, and knowing that you know we're not necessarily on track to a yes, and that I think that in this really vulnerable moment for the city of Boston, we owe it to people to try to get there. And that, frankly, this council is, is capable of that kind of leadership. Um, to me, it's like, I don't want to be in the same play a second time. So yes, it's a change from last year. I would say for me, that reflects a learning on my part um, that just waiting right until the day of um, and is not, it's not the way to be constructive and for us to move forward together collectively. So I, I totally understand the question about what's the difference. And, um, and to me, the difference is kind of trying to learn how to, how we can collectively do this better. So thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for that. So I'm going to continue, Mr. President. Is that cool? Um, so I, I do appreciate the opportunity for us to really fight for the things that we've been advocating for. So Councilor Brock, I really um, am grateful because we've been hearing from a lot of advocates that we haven't gone far enough around some of the issues around police reform, right? Last year we were screaming for 10%, we came to five this year, and I think that there's still some room for us to push the conversation in that space. Advocates have also have been fighting um, for deep police reform. We, we're, we're dealing with a system that has traditionally been, um, there's a lot of racial tension and I think instead of adding more police officers at this point, we need to fix the system so that we can see people ready to do the work. Um, so I, I am not in support of what is being presented at this moment in terms of those issues. And while I do appreciate um, the 250 that we were able to get for municipal broadband, we actually want municipal broadband. And while we appreciate the study, I don't, just don't think it goes far enough. We ask for more youth jobs. Um, we're not there where we need to be. Um, and I think that if this is going to give us an opportunity to advocate for the things that um, we need, then I'm willing to to do that work because that's what's going to get us there. And I also think um, the other piece is that the Boston Public Schools, we have schools that don't have HVAC systems. I mean, there's just a lot. Um, and I, I, I think that an opportunity to pause and, and regroup and, and readjust these numbers to fit the realities is exactly what we need to be doing. Um, and so at this point, I'm not ready to um, support the budget as is and look forward to the conversation so that we can get to where we need to be. Thank you. Thank you, Councilman. All right. Uh, Julia brought up uh, two good things. One, talking about no more police, because while Kim Janey voted no on Marty Walsh's budget, which for a lot of us was a big signal she'll be running for mayor for this year, her biggest concern was the role of the police. She was jumping on to the defund movement, divesting from police, reinvesting in our communities, something that actually does promote public safety. 
And now Kim Janey's policy is to add more police. And the trick they're trying to do is saying, well, by adding more police, police will then have to spend less on overtime. So in that calculus, maybe their budget will go down. As if they didn't have ballooned overtime payments last year or five years ago or 10 years ago. It's almost like it doesn't matter because no matter what happens, we can add as much police as they want and they will continue to run up the tabs on overtime. And so saying that adding more police officers is in fact a triple bank shot of defunding is just completely nonsensical. We need to reduce the role and the capacity of the police, period. She also spoke to uh, one of the big things that Julia wants is uh, municipal broadband, which is would be fantastic, a massive game changer, especially after COVID. There's no one who can say that, no, we uh, internet is not a vital public good. And the fact that Kim Janey just wants a study is, again, ridiculous. If you ever get offered a study, you don't need a study. There are dozens, if not hundreds of cities that already have municipal broadband. We, we know what works and what doesn't. I mean, this is where broadband works. You don't need another study to prove yet again why it's better or more effective. Get the full thing. You don't need the study. I'll do the research for you. The chair now recognizes the district council from East Boston. Councilor Edwards, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, and I appreciate this opportunity. Um, I would say for, you know, speaking from the heart, um, while the question wasn't directed towards me and answering what is the biggest difference, I would say leadership. We have that in Council Bach. We have that in President Pro Tem, Council Mallet. Now, leadership is pushing us to rise to the occasion and try to get to a common ground. I want to thank you for your leadership, Council Bach. You have worked the hardest, probably, for this budget in going back and forth with anybody else. So in my criticisms and in my back and forth, I don't want you to think at all any of that is directed towards you or your efforts. I appreciate how much you have done. I would say, quite frankly, you have done more for this budget than the acting mayor has. Yes. So that, I would say, is the biggest difference. The mayor, last year, called consistently met with every single person, including his would-be opponents, consistently pushing, moving. I had one meeting about the budget, a long list. That's a difference. That's a huge difference. When someone is demonstrating they want to work with you and pushing you. And that is not what is happening now. So instead, leadership is calling us to rise the occasion. And I do support the idea, and I do invite the acting mayor to pass a council's budget, as Council Bach noted. A budget that is reflective of the real needs and meeting the moment of this time. Budgets are not just about the dollars that's to be spent. It is about the policy that's to be funded, if you truly support it or not. It is also about the moral compass of a city in a crisis. You fund those things that you believe are necessary. You just pass and allocate small dollars to things that you think are politically nice. But if we are supposed to meet this moment, and if we look back on ourselves 20, 30 years from now and say at this moment emerging from a pandemic, dealing from uh, the racial, racial reckoning that we had, dealing with the systemic racism and concerns of the Boston Police Department. If we look back on this moment, our question or my question is, does this budget answer those things? The housing crisis has just had gasoline thrown on it with this pandemic. Does this budget meet that moment? It doesn't. It does not. I am not comfortable with this budget for many reasons. But again, I want us to have the moral compass that says housing is a human right. That is not reflected in this budget. All right, I'm going to pause there because we're going to talk about uh, how Lydia voted last cycle. So again, Lydia was part of that group of three which sided with the conservatives. And she gave what I found to be an incredibly insulting speech 
not just directed towards me as somebody who was actively involved in the George Floyd protests, as an ally, as a marshal, but also to all of the organizers, all the activists, to the thousands of people marching the street. Lydia Edwards told them that they were, this is paraphrased, foolish. She quoted Audre Lorde saying that you thought you could use the master's tools to dismantle the master's house. Basically, in my view, misinterpreting what Audre Lorde meant by that quote and instead telling people that you thought public pressure, marches in the street, organizing activism, calling, making your voices heard would actually do anything, and it doesn't. And then she voted with the conservative. And so what she just expressed in that first part, to me, sounds a lot like guilt. Saying, when we look back decades from now, did we meet the moment? Because last year, she absolutely did not. And so for her to now say, now we are in a crisis, now we need to meet this moment, to me, that sounds like she is referring to herself. Now, pushing towards housing as a human right, and then being one of the leading champions of the Suffolk Downs development, I'm sorry. But she helped a Texas billionaire who's around my age purchase a, basically a brand new neighborhood of Boston that everyone knows is going to cause massive displacement in that area for a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the units will actually be affordable to the people in that area, if even that. And so for her to call for housing as a human right while letting a Texas billionaire buy a brand new neighborhood of Boston to, I don't know, create an amusement park with, I'm sorry, no. You don't get to do both. You can say housing is a human right. You can actually fight for that, but you do not get to let a billionaire buy an entire neighborhood of Boston and pretend that's something that you champion. I want us in our budget to say that we believe that we will meet people where they are and we will pass a budget that has a digital infrastructure to assure that people of all languages can participate in our procedures. And that we're going to build it out so that all access points to the city of Boston, whether it's trying to get a permit, to trying to get a handicap um, sign in front of your house, whatever it is, that there's a digital footprint in access and that people of all languages can use it. Our budget doesn't do that. I want this budget to say that we cannot continue the way we're going with a very hardworking and oftentimes the vast majority of good people who work at the Boston Police Department, but there's a systemic problem. There is a systemic problem. And so are we funding a systemic response? One of which policy, myself and my colleagues put forward, but an alternative to 911. This budget doesn't reflect that moral call. And then on housing as a human right, you wanna talk about being bold. The mayor of Boston in the state of the city proposed a half a billion dollars for housing. Now I'm not gonna sit here, I promise, Councilor Vaughn, and say, if this budget doesn't have a half billion dollars, I'm not going to vote for it. So, so why? <laughs> if, if you're going to champion housing as a human right, and if you're then going to look at the need of an area and say, we need a half a billion dollars into affordable housing, otherwise I am not passing this budget. Why wouldn't you make that statement? You still have a week. But using that as leverage, using that as part of a political negotiation, to drag and to pull your opposing side closer to you because they need you. That is literally just how negotiations work. Draw a hard line in the sand. When you say housing is a human right, is housing a human right? Or is it just maybe partial of a human right? 
I would expect this budget emerging from a crisis would be more than just taking federal dollars and saying, so we have this money, we'll just throw some at this, at this fire. It's like taking a garden hose to an eye fire. I want to see systemic response to how we house people in Boston. We lost one of the greatest opportunities with Suffolk Downs. We didn't buy it. It went for $22 a square foot. 161 acres, $22 a square foot. The city of Boston should have bought it. 183 Orleans is a huge building in East Boston, up for auction, down for auction, up for auction, down for auction. And in no way, shape, or form is the city even trying to sit at the table to purchase. I'll give credit where credit's due. Council Baker, who said we should be in this game. We should be in this game and purchasing and moving and demanding more. This budget doesn't reflect that. It's not good enough to be okay right now. Also, that's their it's audio. It's horrible. It's not to me. be normal right now. It's not good enough. And I, I echo what Council Fox said. When the mayor is no longer here, then we as the elected collectively should be running, moving, and be guiding the moral compass of the city. The process for this budget wasn't collective, being announced I think right before our, our meeting the first budget. The conversations about this budget was not collective. And so I will say this politics aside, I invite for a reset in this conversation about this budget. I invite the acting mayor to be part of passing the council's budget and reflected of the, of the people who elected us to do this job. And I invite all of us to put the egos aside, political ambitions to the other side, and get this done. But with standards and guidelines that we will not waver from because we are the elected body for the city. Thank you. Thank you, Councilor Edwards. The chair recognizes the district. Interesting that she didn't mention Suffolk Downs as part of the uh, development that the city should have been at the table to buy. That was interesting. Councilor from Dorchester, Councilor Baker, the floor is yours. Thank you, Ms. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chair. Well said. Oh, but I mean, I, I said I would give everyone's motivation. I don't know. Uh, Lydia's sounded personal to me. It sounded a lot of her trying to justify to herself why her vote last year was correct and to maybe make up for it. She is going to swim easily to re-election, but I think that was a massive blow to her image. I think the Suffolk Downs development was a massive blow to her image as a quote-unquote progressive or a member of the left, and I think this is her trying to get some of that back. It also sounded very personal. She mentioned it a few times that Kim Janey didn't have enough meetings with her. So maybe favoring that access, wanting to be a seat at the table. It sounded very personal. Councillor, um, so I take the budget seriously. I am concerned about our AAA bond rating now. Um, last year, we almost lowered the budget down. I think we're in a much different time now. I think last year, we, we could potentially still be in a 112th now if we lowered the budget down last year. There were some people that say we'll have it done in July and August or whatever. I'm not convinced of that. Um, and I don't, and I'm very concerned about sending the city of Boston into um, a financial like black hole, not really knowing what's going on. All right. Well, one, the the idea that, well, if we don't pass the budget now, and people say, well, the one twelve budget is temporary, who knows how long it will last? So let's just take the safe bet. I mean, that's always going to be a political talking point. It's always going to be a cop out. But I, I want to just hit again this triple bond rating. These are our elected representatives telling us that if a completely unelected board of financiers and hedge fund managers, if they give us a lower report card, they're threatening us with a lower lower report card. So we, we have to pass what they want us to pass. Never mind what the people do. Never mind the needs of the city. Never let them hold that up. Call that out for exactly what it is. And to say, well, then why are you even here? Why are we doing this? Why are we voting? If at the end of the day, your vote is going to be contingent on a group of people we've never met or heard of who are going to decide for us what letters we get as a city, 
which then dictates the interest loans we get. Why are we doing a public bank then? Why are we electing you and if a report card from a completely different entity outside of the democratic process is what's really guiding your, your thinking? Why even do any of this? But of course, they don't really have a good answer to that. That being said, attaching myself to some of the things, the logic ticket items that seem to be burning all around the city, the one for me is down in Madison Cass. You know, we, we, I've asked for through the task force, and, and again, I use the word treadmill all the time. I feel like I'm on a treadmill, whether it's Long Island, whether it's, what are we doing down there? We need to change up what we're doing because the open drug use, the open drug dealing, I believe we're not doing the people down on Madison Cass a service. I believe it's the devil at work down there. I believe that. that being- so again, how... How can you have an honest, sincere, intelligent conversation about drug abuse, homelessness, if people's synopsis of it is, well, it's, it's the devil. It's the devil down there. It's just evil. It's, just, it's an unknown foreign entity. None of it is caused by material conditions. None of it is about the policies that he has spent over a decade championing. It's not, nothing to do with that. No, no. It's spiritual. Being said... We need to look at the way our jails are now. Our jails are both half, half empty. Why can't we repurpose one of those as a hospital facility, take in detox beds, take in Section 35s? I know people are scared of a Section 35. I've probably done it more than everybody here in the room. And people that I brought into Section 35, they're not here now, but some of them are. And I think if we have an opportunity for people to be able to, they can self-admit it. And I remember that was the shocker, him calling about closing prisons and opening a, hu- a hospital. That was a sock. Uh, shocker. I'm going to Google later what Section 35 is. I'm curious if he's referring to an eminent domain clause. Section 35, if we had a program, if we turned Nashua Street into just a hospital facility with public health, dealing with uh, Tompkins, the sheriff, to be able to have cold people and, and, and deal with them. In their- okay, so wait, we're going to close a prison, open up a hospital, but have the sheriff run it? Oh, yeah, that took you two sentences to ruin that idea. Housing issues and their mental health issues, on, on, on job training issues and, and GED issues. Dealing with them and then getting them back into society after being able to let them get healthy for 30, 45, 60, 90 days. If you're putting people in a detox for 10, 12 days, forget about it. They're on that treadmill. That's what my mother used to say. It's a treadmill of going into detox, coming right out, running into the same sorts of friends. So things that I would advocate for is if we're talking about policing. Also, like the the detox 30, 60 day thing, uh, it's a false understanding of addiction. If someone goes in, gets clean, gets healthy, again, absolutely fantastic. If they're outside, material conditions do not change. If on the outside, their human interpersonal connections do not change, then the conditions which led and fed into that addiction will simply repeat itself. And the intermurum of that period of abstinence is just going to be that. It's going to be a blank space. And so... For some people, they think, well, oh, all you have to do is just get off it. It's just the chemical dependency. Once you beat the chemical dependency, it's gone. And that is just not how addiction and drug use work. One of the largest collective studies that people have looked at is at how effective are nicotine patches. Because if things like tobacco use, for example, that's uh, just nothing more than a chemical dependency on nicotine, then having a nicotine patch, that should kill it. That's kind of the idea of some of the treatments that Frank Baker's expressing. And what that's found was that it's only successful for 17%, which means that the 83% of people, that the addiction does not come from a chemical dependency, it comes from something else. A different way and how we're going to go after this sort of problem, I would like to see police and fire and EMS and public works and public health under one 
one roof somewhere down around Mass and Cass. I would call it a command center. Maybe that's too militarized. Maybe it's a recovery, whatever it is. But everybody in that room responds to our 311s. And in, 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 in San Francisco, they call out the um, homeless encampment, drug addicted. So all of those 311 calls go to a command center. Again, we can call it whatever we want. I know it's all about words these days. I don't normally have the words. We can call it whatever we want, but we need one of those. And we need a real Section 35 program. And drug diversions is another thing we're not talking about. Love they take some dig at world culture. That's mostly that whole porch pirates. People are stealing all your all your um, Amazon packages. That's all run by people on drugs that are desperate. We need to put those people in front of judges, and that judge is going to say, "Well, you've been shooting poison in your arm for ten years. So how good is your thought process? Can you take care of yourself?" And then that person, I, at that point, I would say, "It's the devil at work." And that poison going in their arms is the devil at work, or going in their arms or wherever it's. Oh my God! This is like straight out of the nineteen fifties. One, I didn't know Porch Pirates was a phrase. I like it. I'm pro. Not not pro the act. I, I, I just think of Porch Pirates. I think that's a funny expression. But, again, the, the idea that, oh, it's just the drug that, that's turning you. This is why you don't do drugs. And if we just get the drug out of you, get the devil out of you, you'll be better. I mean, Frank Baker has lived long enough. He, he has to understand that that's not how drugs work. That's not how addiction works. That's not how anything works. It's going. That's another section of people that we're not is just out in the street now. Low-level drug offenses. When they go in front of our judges here in Massachusetts, they're gonna say, "We're not putting you away. We're not putting you in jail sentence. We're gonna give you help." And that's what I think we need to start doing as a city. And another thing, beyond the budget, and there's people in this room that could potentially be the next mayor. What is it that we're gonna do with this Fed money? What are we gonna build for infrastructure? We have a falling down at Frontage Road, falling down. We need infrastructure there. We talk about green jobs till we're blue in the face. What's the real plan for the green jobs? You and I have talked about anaerobic digesters for 10 years now. Is that another treadmill we're on, Mr. Chair? What is the infrastructure we're going to buy with this? Or are we just going to take all this Fed money and dole it out politically? We need to build things. I have lots in my district that I can tie on to right now, Council Members. I'm looking at you. I can tie on. Let's get 30 million bucks into this law here and build 60 units and work with Maha and have people buy those units. That's how we're going to, that's how we're going to stabilize Field Corner in places like that. If we're building the properties and we're controlling them, we now sell to who we want to sell to. We tie on with Maha, and that's how we... Okay, well, um, I'm loving the uh, the city owning, but if you quickly just notice what he, what he just did, and thank you for the love in the chat. And yes, I, I mean, some drugs I stay away from. Some, uh, yeah, I'll join you. But Frank Baker quickly just gives it up at the very end, which is the city buys... And then the city gives it away to a private entity. No, 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 no. We are not going to use public dollars as a way of subsidizing a private developer. I am more of a champion of city-owned public property than anyone on that council. But if you buy it, you now own it. It is about getting land, getting buildings, getting housing out of the market and holding it separately. Talking about public housing. So if the city's going to buy a lot, fix it up, renovate it, make it all nice and new, make it livable for 60 units, go for it. The idea that then we're going to take that and now we're going to sell it on the side and now a private developer is going to have it. No, 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 no. City bought, city owned, community managed. Let's go. All those things aren't being spoken to. There's no, it, it's all political here. I speed up the audio, but oh yeah, he, he does normally sound a little, uh, most of the time. And I'm very concerned about us. I think we have major, major opportunities in front of us. 
and I feel like I'm a little more sonic type. Quite frankly, I'm sick of it. Um, All right, you made the treadmill analogy like five times. We'd love to see some of these big ticket items. They may come ten years after I'm dead. Did he? I don't know. Did he just Long say he's still going to sign on to it? God damn. The most tender person on the street. That, that being said, still quite undecided on the budget. Okay, We'd undecided. Love to see some of these big ticket items. They may come ten years after I'm dead. I don't know. Long Island's a whole another thing. If we had a long-term solution, if we had people in a detox for 90 days, that person isn't the most tender person on the street that day. So we don't have to worry about acute care out on Long Island is why we needed the bridge. What happens if someone has a heart attack? They're probably going to die if we have a bridge there or not, if it's bad enough. But if we don't have a highest-need people out there, if we have people that have four, five, six months sobriety, and they're able to go out there and take a, take a breath, walk, work on their GED, work on their job training, work on themselves how to become people again. So... <laughs> All right, so Frank Vegas' plan is put somebody in a detox for 60 days, kick them out on the street again, and then they're going to work on a job plan and work on a GED. That's my two cents here today. You know, but all take right, this all right, budget seriously. All right, come on, Frank. Let's go. What's that happening? If we go from AAA to an A, what's that reaction to us in the banks and the way the financial world looks at the city here? So, Again, still basically saying that our representatives should not actually voice any policy, should not listen to any demands of the people, should not actually look at the needs of the community, should only look at what might our report card be from a bunch of financiers, Wall Street regulators, and using regulators loosely, and, and whatever report card they're threatening us with, that's what we determine. Never let anyone use that argument. There's a lot of play. I'm glad we're talking about it. This is uh, Frank Baker, actually my city council member, District 3. Okay. Thank you, Councilor Baker. All right, take a breath. Chair recognizes the district councilor from Mattapan. Councilor Campbell, the floor is yours. Um, thank you. I too am glad as a family we were talking. Uh, I, I keep promising I'll give everyone's motivation. Uh, Frank Baker really has no motivation. <laughs> um, no, I mean it's mostly to make money for himself and his family. His family's um, in development. I think his brother's a real estate agent. So his entire focus is developing Dorchester to enrich himself and his friends. And so using this as a pathway to do that. He has a primary challenge uh, from Stephen McBride, who I've um, met a few times. Seems like a good person, most certainly a preferable uh, candidate and a preferable counselor to Frank Baker. So we'll take a look at how that race progresses. And now we got Andrea Campbell up. Um, I made it clear yesterday that I was a no on, on this budget. But I also want to stress that I've been extremely consistent. I was a no on the BPS budget for the last... Uh, for the people joining on TikTok, this is the Boston City Council hearing today. Also, I recommend you watch this on Twitch, so that way you can kind of see the candidates and the faces and not just looking up at me. Two years. I was no on this budget last year. Um, my record hasn't changed, and frankly, for similar reasons, I'm a no on this budget. And it actually has to do with three particular reasons. Number one is absolutely the policing reform conversation. We had thousands of residents show up here, email us, call us, text us, engage us in ways we had never been engaged before as elected leaders. And that was all, of course, in response to George Floyd. And we said, how do we, at, in this moment in time, meet the urgency of the moment? And so I was deeply disappointed during this whole process, including with the resubmittal, that it did not rise to the occasion of actually meeting those demands from constituents we heard from then and we continue to hear from. And this budget, particularly when it comes to policing, actually adds more officers. There was absolutely no plan to rein in a ballooning overtime budget, which everyone in the city should absolutely be concerned about, because even the police department agreed it's not sustainable, particularly coming out of COVID. It's a $400 million budget with a $70 million overtime budget that continues to rise. Not sustainable. And I say the same thing for any other department. Boston Public Schools, I'm concerned. 
And so this budget does not in any meaningful way, and I've been in numerous hearings, of course, including with the police department and other public safety agencies, meet this moment in time. I uh, d- all right, quickly pause there. Two or three things. One, um, Andrea made a public statement yesterday that I played on the show, basically explaining why she's going to vote no on the budget. Maybe this was the catalyst to why Kenzie thought that they needed to do this public airing of grievances. The second is the big concerns over the police overtime. The simplest solution to it is to basically look at the amount of shifts that they're allocating and saying, cut the shifts. Because what's happening now is, let's say, the Boston police run 100 different shifts um, every eight hours. So you need 100 officers to cover those 100 shifts. Well, if there's only 80, and some people have called out, now you get 20 empty shifts. So now they put it up. All right, who wants one of those 20 empty shifts? And you get overtime pay. So the officers who are not on duty say, yeah, I'll take one of those shifts for, I don't know, 1.25 or 1.5, maybe two times as much as they would normally get doing a shift during their regular schedule. Just count the, cut the amount of shifts you're doing. It's, it's a simple solution. And I'm very curious. She tied it into the Boston Public Schools. I, I've never heard of Boston Public Schools having an overtime problem. But I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Maybe I misinterpreted I've been consistent on that. I said it last year. It's the same message this year. And if anything, our acting mayor was one of those no votes last year. So I expected, frankly, an opportunity to negotiate with her along with the administration, particularly on policing reform. I never got an opportunity to negotiate with the campus recently. That's actually a difference from last year. I didn't always agree with our previous mayor, but there was an opportunity to have the conversation. And I still voted no because I did not see in that budget what I thought would meet the need of the constituents I represented at the time. The second piece is mass and gas. I know Councillor Baker and Councillor Flynn have been working on this tirelessly. It's a section that's currently outside of my district, but of course is the main topic of discussion in the city of Boston because it is the other public health crisis we are dealing with. And it's becoming more of a public safety crisis as well. And one self-in resident recently remarked, in his words, this is a humanitarian crisis because it is that bad in the region. We're seeing an uptick in sexual assaults. We are seeing an uptick in human trafficking, an uptick in the number of tents in the area. And yet I sent correspondence to the previous administration, to our acting mayor when she was council president, stressing that we needed a new approach as a collective, all working in partnership, we're not all experts, but working in partnership to deal with that issue, along with providers, mental health clinicians, residents who of course been on the forefront with respect to these issues, so many different stakeholders coming together. How many responses have I received to that correspondence? Absolutely none. No response to the emails, no response to the letters, nothing. And when I was reached out to by the administration, I stressed the number one concern that I was frustrated around was mass and caps. And I still thought that maybe there would still be an opportunity to be able to have a deeper conversation with residents on those particular issues. So that is the next reason I've chosen to vote no on this budget. Lastly, is Boston Public Schools. And the message is completely consistent. I've always said that this district continues in many ways to fail families. I'm a product of EPS. I went to five Boston Public Schools. And I often stress that but for the grace of God and the education I got in this system, I would not have been successful. We're not going to solve poverty overnight. We're definitely not going to eradicate it overnight. We're not going to reduce trauma in neighborhoods that are grappling with that. We're not suddenly going to bring families back together. We're not going to give youth everything they would need. But this one thing in terms of Boston Public Schools, we can do. And I've been disappointed at the lack of transparency, accountability within the overall system, the lack and terrible family engagement. All of us were on a call yesterday around just how we have to be better on family engagement. We've been saying that for the last six years. And the inequities in the system continue to get worse, not better. And we just lost 2,000 families within Boston Public Schools, the sharpest decline in the last 15 years. That should be telling us something. So for me, there still needs to be major work when it comes to Boston Public Schools to ensure that every single student and family in this city has access to incredible education, regardless of the neighborhood they live in or, frankly, their demographic. And this budget doesn't do that. And frankly, with the infusion of the federal dollars we're getting, I still have questions on how this money is going to be used. I absolutely think it should be used for infrastructure. Yes, I'm going to be at the Sarah Greenwood School on Friday, at least a team member. 
They have asbestos in their building. They've been fighting for years for new infrastructure. These are the projects we need to be accelerating right now, also using it as an opportunity to provide jobs. Climate projects, other projects, yes, build things, create jobs. We can do that in this moment in time. We can do it through Boston Public Schools. That is not necessarily reflected. And I will say, it, I appreciate the leadership of all of my council colleagues, and I know we come at this from various vantage points. But I do think this is an opportunity for us as a collective to figure out how we move forward to provide a budget that will meet the moment in time we're in, meet the constituents' needs. I, I'm just going to pause um, Andrea there because I don't know um, if she's winding up or about to uh, finish up. Uh, she, she, made a, she made a lot of points. One, she talked about the rising rate of crime. The most recent numbers that I've seen show that violent crime in Boston went down during the, uh, the, the last year. Now, a lot of cities saw an uptick in certain types of crime. A lot of cities saw an uptick in, in crime because of the economic deterioration that people experienced during COVID-19. And the economic um, instability during that period. Even though some people absolutely benefited from it. And for some people, their first time receiving checks, I think it cut childhood poverty in half for like those few months, just for that little bit of stimulus that we didn't get. But the last I saw, crime in Boston went down. Major crime that she was describing. She probably gets better numbers than I do. She spent a lot of time on the public schools. Um, I'm not going to hit more about her history right now about that. And so just to give you her, her motivation, obviously, she is running for mayor. She has consistently been in that second tier of candidates, despite having the most or at least tied for the most amount of money. And so I think her coming out strong in the budget was a very good political move. I don't want to tie in to how, what it does to Michelle Wu just yet. But... Andrea has been very good with the police. And so I am very, very curious to see how the other candidates respond to Andrea's push right now. But her motivation is to 100% try to distinguish herself and to separate and to lower Kim Janey. Because as I said before many times, the moment that Kim Janey entered the race, Andrea was had the inability or lost the ability to define herself in the race. And so trying now to combat Kim Janey, to get as far to the left of Kim Janey as possible, because there have certainly been policies that Kim Janey is better on than Andrea, where it comes to who is the more progressive in a policy, public transportation being one of those. And so I, this is, I think, Andrea trying to really drive that wedge and try to get to the left side of Kim Janey. And to see what happens. And do it in such a way that it works in partnership with the administration, with the acting mayor, because it's critically important that we do all work together in this moment in time. And I've been stressing that from the very beginning. I can separate a campaign from doing the work on behalf of my constituents. And it's really important in this moment in time, given the layers of politics, that we absolutely do that. And so I'm looking forward to this renewed opportunity to be able to hopefully get some greater investments, particularly on these three issues, in some restructuring and some response on issues I've been raising for some time. Um, I continue to be a no. I made it crystal clear yesterday for the same reasons I said last year and years before. Um, and so if anything, I'm excited for the possibility of being able to reset and to have a renewed conversation that will in fact use this opportunity to create a budget that will meet the needs of our residents, but most importantly, also meet the needs of our city employees who also have been stressing they might need greater investments in certain departments. They have major concerns about coming back to work with no flexibility, no hybrid. This is an opportunity for us to also engage in those conversations. Looking forward to it. Thank you, um, Mr. President. Thank you very much, Councilor right. Campbell. We're gonna... Chair now recognizes the District Council from Hyde Park. Councilor Royal, the floor is yours. We're gonna listen to Arroyo. 
because he was great on this. And then we'll try to figure out where we're at and, and um, what we're going to look at maybe for tomorrow. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, and thank you to the council, frankly, for the passion uh, and the very obvious care for what I believe is the city of Boston. I don't think anybody here uh, who is sitting on one of these chairs isn't thinking about their constituencies, uh, in my instance, my neighborhoods, uh, or the city as a whole, if that's, if that's your charge. Uh, and so, you know, I just want to kind of get into what I see as pretty key differences. Unlike Mr. Chair, this is only my second budget. Uh, and wow, we're <laughs> from the standpoint of having two budgets, uh, this is two completely very different processes uh, thrown right into the deep end. Uh, and what I would just say is uh, I voted no on last year's budget. Uh, and I, I don't recall a single conversation with the mayor of the city at that time. Uh, in fact, I believe that that process was so broken that this council came back with an amendment to change the budget process as it has existed for many, many years because that process was so broken. Uh, one that this mayor, who's currently sitting in that office, signed and I hope gets voted into because it's not doesn't become official without votes. So I hope that folks who are paying attention do vote for it. That allows the city council to have more say in what that budget process looks like. Uh, but the birth of that was a very broken budget process last year uh, that I don't believe centered the needs of the city. And my ass uh, were pretty consistent. Uh, they're still pretty consistent. I wanted a 10% cut uh, MPPD reallocated to specifically services for our communities. Uh, and so I want to get into that. Uh, last year, and I've been clear on this, this isn't news, this isn't the first time I've said it. Last year, there was no plan. There was a cut to BPD overtime. I was never presented with a single plan for how to achieve that and make that real uh, at all. And in fact, it wasn't made real. We, we, we run over that as a city. Uh, and that's, that's pretty true to form. I will say that this year, uh, I did receive something of a plan on that particular part of the budget cut. Uh, and I've made clear to this mayor, and, and if it's you know moving forward, any mayor, uh, you know if it doesn't work this year, that particular cut to OT, I mean, hopefully the city council has some budget process say through this amendment, uh, but I think we have to look at a different way of how we get to actualizing those things. Um, I will say as well that this year's budget, uh, as far as BPD goes, uh, is smaller uh, by last year's budget, uh, by some amount, not, not a large amount. But if you take out OPAT, which I was proud to be a lead co-sponsor on with uh, Councillor Campbell and Councillor Mejia, if you take out the money allocated for OPAT, you do get very close to 10%, uh, which is what I was seeking. Uh, and obviously that's not the end all be all of where we are with police reform. There are other places, the gang. I, I, I need to look into what OPAC is, because what I'm concerned, it sounds like a lawyer is saying, is that he called for a 10% decrease last year, be roughly $40 million. And there is a new program, I need to see what they're referring to, I think it is the, the new mental health services, which is that going to be under the umbrella of the police? Because otherwise, that's just still giving them the funding. And now Roy is saying, but if you remove that thing that we do want from the police budget, now they are actually close to the 40 million I asked for. Kind of like building in a justification for an eventual yes, no, an eventual, an eventual yes vote, even though the Boston Police Department's budget is still relatively the same. So it seems like he's baking in a justification for a future yes, which is a little disheartening. But again, that's just what it seems like database. Uh, City Councilor Edwards brought up the uh, 911 response system that was filed last year and, and wasn't refiled this year. And I do hope to see that we do some action on this body on, in regards to that. Uh, in terms of uh, the budget, uh, I've had a pandemic, uh, just like everybody else over the last year, uh, that has really devastated my community. Specifically, I represent High Park, Mattapan, Rosendale. If you go look at COVID infection rate uh, throughout this pandemic, those two neighborhoods were two and three at different points in time for total. The, the first place being, of course, Councilor Edwards is East Boston in terms of total infections. And so we've really experienced that uh, inequity in, in terms of how it's been, uh, how the impact has impacted our neighborhoods, both from a health perspective, but also from a business perspective. perspective. I have businesses that uh, have really struggled to survive and many have not. Uh, and that, that's shared throughout the city. 
uh, throughout this pandemic, one of my major concerns as chair of public health was access to testing, access to vaccines, things that I did not believe that the last administration was adequately covering High Park uh, specifically on uh, until about the end of it when we got the vaccine centers through the Y. Uh, this budget creates an allocation that I'm very glad for, that I fought really hard for, for a community health center in High Park. That's, that's the first they've not had one. Um, those are the kinds of things that I'm weighing. This budget creates uh, some conservation, uh, conservation court money, puts money aside for participatory budgeting. These are good things. These are also things that I will add uh, have been things that have been advocated for by this body. Uh, and so when we talk about the budget as sort of the council's budget or the mayor's budget, this is the city of Boston's budget. And I echo uh, Councillor Baker in that I'm deeply concerned about where we are as a city. We're coming out of a pandemic. We are reopening. I don't have a mask on right now. Neither does anybody else at these tables. We are vaccinated. We are in a very different place than we were last year at this time. Uh, and what I would say is as we reopen, as we try to instill confidence in the economic sector and the faith and guidance of our bond ratings and the faith and guidance of our city as it moves forward in opening up in the way that it needs to, I think that this is a, a situation where we really do need to set aside politics as best as possible. We're all elected officials to really ensure that we're not putting the city in a position where we could do it real harm and its stability. And I, and I would wow. just say that I think this, this body, uh, through the HRP special election in the middle of a pandemic, the idea of transitioning different mayors show that they care about that. Uh, and I think that in the terms of how we do this, I'm glad that Councilor Bach, uh, Madam Chair of Ways and Means, who has done excellently, I think, in shepherding two budgets in two very difficult situations uh, through, I, I like that we have a chance to speak on the floor and to speak to this budget. I will say specifically that there are places I've not seen a perfect budget. I'm not sure if folks who have seen more than me have seen a perfect budget. Uh, I have high hopes for the ability for the city council in the future to sort of have more control in that budgeting process through that amendment. So thank you to that leadership of Councilor Edwards on that front. Uh, and I do think that as we move forward, these kinds of conversations are healthy. Uh, if I were to sit here and poll each councilor as to what their issue with this budget is, I wouldn't be shocked if we have 12 different things that people say, I want this, but, but that's fine. Or I don't like what you just said was fine, and I want this. That's kind of the process of this legislative body. Uh, but I do think that as we move forward, I appreciate the candor and the uh, passion that I have seen from folks about this budget and about the city. Uh, and I look forward to next week voting on this budget. And I will say that as this budget is constructed currently, I think it is good enough for a yes vote from me. Uh, it is not a perfect budget. It has places where I will be looking for things, uh, specifically on a constituent services level in my district. But I think that this budget has made a lot of progress. And I would just be on the record of saying that the process for this budget and how we've gotten here has been much better than the process that I had last year uh, with uh, Mayor Walsh. And so as we're here now, uh, under this leadership, uh, I look forward to seeing what we do next week uh, and hearing from the rest of my colleagues who get to see. But I, as far as this budget is constructed now, uh, am a yes and hope to see some tweaks in some small areas. But I do think that this budget uh, makes Incredible twist at the end Thank for you, this. All right. So Ricardo was probably the most passionate speaker last year during the budget vote about the defunding of the Boston Police Department to reinvest in the community. Just as I said, I paused it. He gave himself an out, basically saying, well, I, I kind of got the 10% cut I asked for if you look at this program and this program and move this program. Then echoing the bond rating that needs to be the primary concern, not the actual needs of the community, not actually what our legislators would like, that instead a completely unaccounted for group of millionaires and private investors, what report card they're threatening to give us with, that should be the guiding star. That is very disappointing. And then saying, contrasting with the process this time was better. So it sounds to me that Ricardo is trying to put himself in a very favorable position with Kim Janey. Maybe placing bets that, hey, if she wins, I'm going to be one of her best allies on the city council. And then also gave himself the out of, in the future, having a better process. Echoing the very same cop-out that Kenzie, Lydia, and Liz 
gave last year, that in the future we'll have something better. Very disappointing from uh, from Ricardo to, uh, to flip like that. But we're going to leave it there. Maybe we'll revisit this video tomorrow. Maybe there's going to be a hearing uh, tomorrow that is going to be even juicier. But thank you all for watching. If you have not yet, please do go over to Twitch, ideally, if you want YouTube or Facebook. I'm on there as well. Give that a like and subscribe. Share it. I'm going to say goodbye to that audience. I'm going to say goodbye to my podcast audience.